Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, fantasy, horror, sci-fi, and the just plain weird come together in The Kaleidocast. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbound, and Assistant Crypto Provost Don Fairweather Jenkins of the Metatechnic Institute, and Inquisitor James Earl King II, as they explore the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Brad? Why are you shaking? Is everything all right? I was headed over to Sunset Park. Coffee run, you know? And, and I went exploring in the abandoned factories around the Brooklyn Army Terminal. As one does. Exactly. So how was I to know that a door would swing shut and leave me in the pitch dark? All by myself. At least, I thought I was. All by myself. Anyway, I was feeling around, trying to find the door, when someone or something shoved a book into my hands. Then the door opened and, and I was alone. And what was the book about? I, uh, I can't tell you. Why not? The book told me not to. But, on the bright side, stuck inside the front cover was this story, Wing by Amal El-Motar. You can't even give me a hint at what's at the book? Well... Just one little hint. Hold on, I'll ask. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. Sorry, Sam. It just doesn't like you. <laughs> sure, fine, whatever. Wing by Amal El-Motar In a cafe lit by morning, a girl with a book around her neck sits quietly at a table. She reads, not the book around her neck, which is small, only as long and as wide as her thumb, black cord threaded through a sewn leather spine, knotted shut. She reads a book of maps and women, turns every page as if it were a lock of hair, gently. Every so often, her fingers stray to the book that sits above her sternum, twist it one way, then the other. Every so often, she sips her tea. What is written in your book? asks the man who brought her the tea. She looks up. It is said, she reads, that a map drawn on a virgin's skin creates a land on the other side of the moon. Whole civilizations rise, whole empires are built in the time it takes for bathwater and scented soap to tear its minarets down, smash its aqueducts, strike its flying machines from the star-sown sky. This is likely nonsense, but as no one has been to the other side of the moon, it remains entirely possible. The man blushes, then frowns. That's nice, he says, but I meant in your book, the one you wear. What is written there? The girl's lashes touch her cheeks. A secret. He opens his mouth to ask another question, then shuts it. He walks away. The girl with the book around her neck sits quietly beneath a chestnut tree. She reads a book with a halved pomegranate on the cover, a wasp stamping its black feet in the juice. She turns every page as if she were lifting a veil, delicately. The sun is bright against the paper, makes the words swim green against her eyes. 
Another girl comes by, her hair curly, her step light. She wears a bag over one shoulder and sits down near the girl with the book around her neck. She smiles. The girl with the book around her neck smiles back. The girl with the bag pulls out a loaf of bread, a wedge of cheese, a small jar of amber honey, and a knife. She begins to slice, to pare, to drizzle honey on the lot. What are you reading? she asks, curious. Once, reads the girl, only once, for never has this happened since, nor is it likely to. A bird lit down on the head of a young man seated beneath a peach tree. The bird's plumage was most fine, smooth as linen, bright as the afternoon sun drinking garden petals. The man could not gaze at it, but sat very still so as not to disturb it. He closed his eyes, for even the barest flash of tail or pinion as it shifted about his scalp was painful to him, was too beautiful for his gaze. The bird whispered in his ear the secret to immortality, which involved the consumption of nectar, the building of a fire, and the bathing of his limbs in a sacred pool. So deep was the young man's gratitude, so fierce was his love for the beautiful creature perched on his head, that his heart burst in his chest and he died on the spot. The girl with the bag, who had begun to chew her honeyed cheese and bread, coughs a little as she laughs. She wipes her mouth modestly and offers the girl with the book around her neck a morsel of her own. She accepts it, and they munch together in silence. Then, as they are rubbing their fingers together to clean the honey from them, the girl with the bag asks, What is written in the book around your neck? She blushes. A secret. Oh, says the other girl. They spend a few more moments together before the girl with the bag gathers up her effects, bids the girl with the book around her neck a kind farewell, and goes on her way. The girl with the book around her neck sits quietly on a jutting rock by the sea. The sea is not quiet. The sea is an angry choir of dissonant voices, all taking turns striking their rage against the shore. The waves curl foamy fingers towards the rocks, smash their delicate salt bones to glass. Everywhere is a fine, damp mist. The girl has no book to hand. She pulls back the left sleeve of her raincoat, dips her fingers into a tidal pool, lifts a mixture of sand and clay from it, and tries to draw a map on her skin. It is not thick enough. The wet sand will not make lines, only prickle her as it winds its way along her forearm. She pulls her sleeve back down. She looks out at the sea, at the gulls mewling, the crows cawing, and tries to think of a song. A boy approaches the rock on which she sits. He looks up at her. She looks down at him. He wears a raincoat, too, gray as the sea, and a dark blue scarf around his neck to keep the damp from his throat. It is sensible. She does the same. They look at each other a long moment. Then he says, Would you like to hear a story? She nods. It is said that once every 563 days, two people will walk on the beach with matching raincoats. It is further said that every 1,126 days, these people will have matching shoes. But it is rare as a bird with feathers linen smooth, rare as a city on the dark side of the moon, that they will both wear books around their necks, and rarer still that those books will hold secrets. Come up, whispers the girl to the boy with a book around his neck. Come up here. 
He does, with his hands to the rock, his shoes like hers, his coat like hers. He unbuttons the collar, unwinds the scarf from his neck. There is a book there, the same length and width as hers, black cord threaded through its sewn leather spine, knotted shut. He reaches for the knot with slender fingers. Wait, she says, wait. She unbuttons her collar, unwinds her scarf, bears her own book for the opening, bites her lip as she looks at him. Are you sure? I want to tell you a secret, he says, firm. They open their books. They turn every page as if touching each other's cheeks. They read the same word, the only word, buried in each book's deepest heart, nestled up against its sewn leather spine, behind its knotted ribs. When the tide comes in, it finds a clutch of soft gray feathers sticking to the rocks, spilling from the pages of two tiny books with no words in them. The tide yawns. It licks them like a cat. It tangles the black cord that threads them, knots them together, and swallows them into the sea. <laughs> Amal El-Motar is the Nebula-nominated author of The Honey Month, a collection of poetry and prose written to the taste of 28 different kinds of honey. Her work has appeared in multiple venues online and in print, including Strange Horizons, Apex Magazine, Mythic Delirium, Stone Telling, and most recently in Lightspeed Magazine's Women Destroy Science Fiction Special Issue. She is a member of the Banjo Apocalypse Crinoline Troubadours Performance Collective and edits Goblin Fruit, a web quarterly devoted to fantastical poetry. She lives in Glasgow with her husband, a harp, and two jellical cats. Find her online at amalelmohtar.com. Julie Holverson has made a specialty of having no specialty. She has dabbled extensively in costuming, role-playing, LARPing, art, beadwork, acting, and writing in such disparate genres as horror, fantasy, urban fantasy, noir, dark social commentary, and whatever else occurs to her. She has spent the last five years writing, producing, and acting in the award-winning podcast audio drama anthology series, 19 Nocturne Boulevard, and is currently recording audiobooks professionally, as well as producing her first full dramatic audio novel. Hello, eggheads. I just spent a lovely evening with a Miss Ethel DeSantos, drinking bodega coffee in her one-bedroom apartment in Crown Heights. She told me when she moved in with her family as a little girl, it had another name, Crow Hill. A lot's changed since then. She says even the air is different. Songs used to follow the people who came to live there followed them from the deep south and from places across the ocean that they used to call home. Ethel said, Crow Hill used to be a land of storytellers, but they've been pushed out by, well, let's just call it progress. She is one of the few left who remembers, but this is her last day. Before her grandchildren came to pick her up, the oldest has a house in Brownsville. She told me this story. 
It's called Unfit to Eat, and it was entrusted to her by another great storyteller, Tyus Barnwell. Now, you'll hear it in the recording that, as Ethel spoke, youth seemed to return to her voice. But what you won't get is that, well, the room also started to smell of charcoal and hot scales. Unfit to Eat by Tyus Barnwell When I was still a juvenile, an old man made the long climb from the village to our mountainside home. A boy walked at his side to aid him. I remember studying the elder carefully as he stood in the arched entry to our cavern, casting a stocky shadow. From what I could see past my mother's broad body, the man looked filthy and tired, leaning on the boy and his walking stick as though he had a boulder strapped to his back. His hair was white as a fox's winter coat, his face furrowed as the eastern range. The furs weighing him down were so matted that I wasn't able to tell what animal he wore until he lifted the hood and covered his gray features with the face of a grizzled bear. The boy cowered, staring as his master used the bear's spirit to address my mother. Recognize us. Let us understand each other. Please, speak with me as I would speak with you. I was unsure if this was the regular way of welcome between our peoples. But I didn't think so. This was a meeting between holies. With that, she had turned her back on him. With that, she answered only, Skin thief, go away. Animal tongues have been taken from you. Instead, Mother responded with a warm huff of greeting and lowered her guard. She moved aside to allow the bear man and his man cub assistant entry and stoked our fire for them. They hobbled in and huddled over the heat. I remained hidden. After the dance of their eyes over our home was finished, the bear man pushed back his hood again. Shrunken with age, he craned his neck up to my mother. A strange smell diffused through the air then, different than the stink of old sweat, permeating them and their furs as though they were afraid of water. I didn't know what it was back then, and it was gone in an instant. My mind dwelled no more on it. The man spoke. For generations, we have lived in a peace based on a trust between us. He began meekly, but grew bold. We share our bounties with you selflessly, and in turn you do not raise our villages. These words are not meant to be unkind, but our trust has been betrayed. Too many of our people have gone missing. Mother interrupted him with a laugh. I heard her laugh rarely and never like that, before or again. It was scornful and hot from the pit of her stomach. 
Why she sounded that way was hard for me to understand. I was young, or if not that by human standards, then innocent. It was a little frightening, more so when she faded into silence, staring brutally at our guest. The man continued bravely. Will you admit what you have done or mock the bear clan with laughter? We must know why you have done this. Why did you devour them when our beasts can readily be sacrificed? Even I understood then. But we did not eat people. I'd asked why many years before, during a winter, when beasts were few and we were hungry. Why we didn't take one of the villagers? And mother informed me with prompt disgust that they were not fit to be eaten. She spoke to the bear man. My memory is long, while yours is all too short. My kind has heard this before from men like you. It is we who are betrayed, you, who we allowed to remain out of curiosity and pity, have killed the wild herds and now claim we have broken the peace? Too late to be rid of you. Too late. We could have ordered you out, but you merely would have died fighting to the last for what you considered yours. Should we have run the rivers red with your blood, burned you, and half the forest with you? I mock the short memory of the bear clan with laughter. Slowly you have driven us away. Of that I am now certain. You accuse me now and make us enemies? Know that I will not flee as the others did. I am the guardian of this land and so must remain. At your birth, I laughed and said, what is that? I will benignly look down upon you when you die and say, what was that? The man turned to leave. Then he spoke over his shoulder. You force our hand. A threat? Her chest expanding? The man stopped and faced the fire again, a fierce expression on his face that would have been better suited to the bear. You cannot threaten a monster, only defend from one. You have made us so. My mother's statement was light and soft as a puff of smoke on the man's retreating back. When they were well gone, I emerged and settled next to my mother in front of the fire to warm my scales and wondered what these creatures would do with their hand. Weeks passed, uneventfully. I did not begin to forget. Our race has a long memory, but the fear faded and was no longer fresh in my mind. We never discovered the real reason for the disappearance of the villagers, and they soon fell from frequent thought into the recesses of our interest. When we went hunting in the evenings, it was without trepidation, without suspicion. They'd laid an ingenious trap since they knew we depended more heavily on their stock during the winter when wild prey moved south. 
There were few left afield for us to choose from, and we always took the furthest from the farms. As she set foot near the herd of sheep, the ground seemed to suck her into its mouth. She took a few stuttered steps before she was unable to lift her feet and began to sink. Eventually, her legs stuck firmly in the quickening sand. Then people sprung from piles of leaves and dirt all around her. She doubled her efforts when she saw what so frightened me. The axes and pitchforks, here and there a sword. Smart enough to trick us. Wise enough to stay outside her reach, they tossed a net over her back and smothered her wings. Threw ropes around her long neck, pulling her head to the ground. I hadn't reached maturity yet and had no means of self-defense, so I could do nothing but watch from where I hid. She could not help herself. Tied as she was and so deeply mired. And so they fell upon her. I saw blood, heard the crunch of breaking bones accented by animalistic cries. They stabbed and slashed and cut her. She lashed out with fire and a painfully pitiful wail that bent her enemy's ears. Some clutched their heads in pain. Their ropes tightened around her neck. Two men hacked through her throat with a few hard chops of sword and axe. Their cries of exultation were horrible. They were demons, hoisting high her head and dancing in the rain of her blood, singing death songs to their god. It took three men to carry her head away, and the mob danced after them, out of the fields and down toward the village. I remained frozen. I'm unsure how long. As dawn finally broke, I came to my senses and returned home. I buried myself at the depths of our cavern and lost track of time in the darkness. I felt more pain than the anguish caused by what I had witnessed and all I had lost. The physical tortures of puberty began as nature intended. The completion of my slow maturation. If only the change had come earlier. My muscles ached. I writhed in my sleep and dreamed I was being torn apart, that lightning burst from my sides and ripped me asunder. I have heard only the butterfly goes through a more painful and awesome transformation. I was lucky to survive untended. Emerging for the first time as an adult, only my rage was familiar to me a memorable sour taste that made me grind my teeth. I did not plan revenge, nor concoct evil images of destruction. Hay and hair alight, their stinks mingling into something more terrible. To this day, I do not remember wishing carnage to plummet as hail upon those murderous serfs. After weeks of surviving on fish in our cavern lake, I'm sure it must have been some carnal instinct that drew me to the type of replenishment I needed after my arduous ordeal. My rage gave strength to the wings I did not yet know how to use. One moment afoot, the next I was a wing, 
The wind firm as the earth underneath me. The world yielded a beauty I'd never seen. A rainbow painted on the air by the gods in beast, rock, and plant. Whites of clouds drifted into the whites of snow caps. The grays of the mountains crumbled into the greens of trees and grass for miles out to the great sea where the blues of sky and ocean met. The wind sang a magnificent and divine war song. They were like ants below me. Down, a swooping descent, I could smell their guilt on the wind, whistling up from the open lair of this traitorous race. And under that, the smell of man blood, salty and bitter. They were transparent flesh, a maze of veins laid over bones. My talons tore through cloth and flesh beneath. All was red to me. Rib cages opened like crabs' bellies. Men, women, each equally foul tasting. Skin and entrails sprayed from my teeth as I shook them. I am sure there were sounds of bones breaking and much screaming, but I don't remember hearing anything. Or perhaps their mouths were open in mute horror as they tried futilely to flee. I devoured them as I would beasts, leaving the bad parts for the vultures. Fire burst from my throat in a reflex whenever one of them fought back with any success. Two stabbed me and I lit them like candles and sent them back to burn their homes. In their midst, the bear man yelled and pointed. But they were too small, too few, too unprepared to bring me down. As for him, he was too old to do anything but die. His spine snapped as easily as his walking stick. It was a familiar smell that finally brought me to my senses. I'd smelled it the day the elder visited us. Fear. A strong stink. Offensive. I had sense enough to raise the rest. The corpses, the leftovers, and the living. Before I flapped aloft for home. From my vantage, I could still see the flames as I rested. A funeral pyre for the race that had betrayed us because of fear or something else. And for my mother, whose body they turned into a trophy. Both deserved a proper cremation. So, I held vigil over their pyre for the two days that it burned. And when the fires had all subsided and the cinders of the huts cooled to dust, I crawled into my cavern and went to sleep. I slept away the distaste and indigestion. New nightmares replaced the old for a time, but eventually those faded away in the depth of a rest I had never known, a rest that eased the need to make sense of myself and the world, eased but did not erase. Perhaps this confusion kept me within myself, here, nearest the breath of the Mother Earth as I could reach, farthest from walking reminders of my guilt. People forget, and history is cyclical. But as I said, my memory is long, and when I awoke, I resumed a more ancient vigil.
watching over the ancestral home of lost generations, as is my duty. I have hosted bear and wolfmen, lion men, and even those armored in metal shells like turtles. I have told this story a hundred times to two hundred listeners. I have been through this before and know how it will end. I have met you before when you were an old man. Aaliyah Tyus Barnwell is an editor for Hardcore Droid and has published fiction in Sixfold, Expanded Horizons, and is forthcoming in Another Realm, among other places. Look for her on Facebook at Aaliyah Tyus Barnwell. Erica is a wife and mother and an alumna of LaGuardia Fame High School. She enjoys participating in local community theater productions. Some productions include Kiss Me Kate as Hattie, Damned Yankees as Lola, and Into the Woods as Florinda. She enjoys reading aloud and bringing stories to life, especially for her children. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Our sound engineers are Atticus Ryan Garten, Alicia Barrett, and Matt Mazzarella. Your hosts are Tanya Ireland-McLean as Dawn Fairweather-Jenkins, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Special thanks go out to Marcy Arlen. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. Go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and for links to all our contributors. (laughs) 